Lawn Governance Podcast. Middle East Lawn Governance is a journal for scholarly analysis focusing on issues of governance and social, economic, and ideological change in the modern Middle East and North Africa. And this is our podcast. My name is Ezra Carmel, and today we are lucky to be joined by Dr. Carmen Geha. Carmen is an assistant professor of public administration at the American University of Beirut, and her research examines the nexus between politics and public institutions. She has three main areas of academic interest, women's political representation, refugee crisis politics and policies, and civil society and protest movements, the last of which we are mostly going to be focusing on today. Uh, Her first book, Civil Society and Political Reform in Lebanon and Libya, examines the challenges to mobilization and reform in power-sharing political systems by studying campaigns on elections and constitutional development. Her second book, which she is currently writing, is on the various aspects of return for Syrian refugees in the Middle East and Europe. Carmen, thank you very kindly for joining us today. Thank you, Ezra. I'm very happy to do this. To start off, would you like to say a little bit about yourself and your work and maybe how you ended up with your research focuses? Yeah, thank you. So this is the first time that I do an academic podcast and I'm uh, really pleased to join. And it's a great idea that Middle East Law and Governance is doing this um, to help academics like myself, particularly those, those of us in the Middle East, kind of reach out to a wider audience. Um, so I, I've always been sort of an activist and a dreamer and I've been very involved in all things election and anti-corruption in Lebanon. And so I went into my PhD thinking, uh, you know, around the role of academia very early on and kind of changing the systems around us. And this is what got me interested. And so my line, my track in university is public administration and leadership development, but I actually study the interaction between politics and the performance, whether bad or good, of public institutions in my country primarily, but with an eye on the MENA region. Great. Thank you. Uh, So several months ago, you wrote a very interesting article for Middle East Law and Governance uh, that focuses on the resilience of the sectarian power-sharing agreement in Lebanon. I was hoping that maybe you could explain a little bit about the power-sharing system and what you see as contributing to its its resilience. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, power-sharing systems and power-sharing institutions aren't derogatory terms. I mean, actually, power-sharing is a good thing. It gets often warring factions to the table and gets them to agree to share governance. Now, what happens in the Lebanese case after Ta'if is that power-sharing institutions and power-sharing informal agreements outside of government end up um, uh, being more stronger than government. And so my article looks at how power-sharing sort of adapts and learns in times of crisis. Um, And it challenges this salient idea that there are long phases of deadlock and inaction in Lebanon by saying, look, even when there is, you know, a facade of political disagreement, institutions continue to learn and adapt to the crisis. Uh, And I'm looking mainly at the Syrian refugee crisis. Now, an important caveat is to say that this is not a normative piece. I don't think that the system, you know, sort of is adapting in a good way, in a way that respects Uh, human rights and and social justice, but I'm saying it it is resilient in the face of crisis. It's continued even after a civil war, it pieces itself together, and we need to start looking at uh, power-sharing systems within this sort of critical angle and not only think of them as either transitions into liberal democracies or, you know, mechanisms to solve conflict, which is what the uh, uh, literature before has focused on, particularly Iraq, Northern Ireland, etc., 
Uh, so you wrote this piece several months ago, uh, before the protest movements began, and as you mentioned, it engages a lot with resilience in the face of crisis and deadlock, mostly around the Syrian refugee uh, situation. But I was hoping that, given the more recent protests in Lebanon, you could perhaps speak to the resilience of the sectarian power-sharing system in that context. Yeah, so just to give um, maybe listeners a bit of a background, so the article argues that the power sharing system is uh, robust against all odds and sort of traces this to its genealogy, its history, and says, look, even with war and regional conflict, even with the presence of Hezbollah, etc., these main actors after the civil war agree to keep on sharing power and keep on responding to various shocks that happen. And even when there's deadlock, it doesn't mean inaction. Now, Fast forward to um, what's happening now in Lebanon. Um, Also note caveat that I'm very much sort of an insider into that dynamic. So I'm speaking partly with my background as a scholar on on this issue, but also because I've been participating a lot on the ground. I do think that the um, latest protest uh, that's really turned into a massive revolution does shake and does threaten the pillars of sectarian power sharing because it shifts the conversation from people demanding, like me for so many years, reform and, oh, please respond to people's needs. And why is it that the system isn't responding to reform? It shifts the conversation entirely to this system is not legitimate, not capable, not competent of representing the Lebanese people, let alone reforming itself in order to provide basic services, democratic reform and social justice. So what I see and what I think I will start writing about is this complete you know, shift in the paradigm from my own work and my own research and my own activism into a paradigm that says, this is this doesn't stand in 2020 anymore. It is not possible that we're governed through a triangle of religious courts, weapons, and 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 corrupt officials. Um, so even if it is resilient, it no longer or cannot respond uh, to people's needs and, and young people's aspirations. So I think that the revolution has made the system much less resilient because it's become it's made a mockery out of it. Really, I mean, it's made a mockery out of out of its symbols. It's made a mockery out of its slogans, and I don't think that it can stay resilient um, in the face of this much out- outcry and outburst of energy. Because all systems, including you know uh, autocratic regimes and ty- tyrannical regimes, need the obedience of people and need people to follow, whether through fear or through conviction. And I think that uh, neither through fear nor conviction that uh, these people can govern anymore. These you know seven, eight warlords, men that got off of their tanks in the war and cleaned their hands from blood and said, you know, we're going to share power. We promise this and that. Yes, they were very resilient, but they're losing their own people. They're losing support. They're losing their foreign patrons. Um, And I do think that the revolution has shaken uh, the very grounds in which the system uh, rests on. And I think I'll, you know, I want to change this both in my uh, academic work and in my engagement with public life in Lebanon. It's it's interesting and, of course, encouraging that you see a loosening of the sectarian power-sharing grip. Uh, I wonder, though, if we could speak also to the actions that the government has taken during the protests. Could you tell us a little about its counter-revolutionary tactics, uh, such as maybe the violence we saw starting a few weeks ago, or even the appointment of the Dieb government and the associated uh, narrative co-option on that front? Yeah, co-option is uh, up my alley. I look a lot at uh, in other co-optation and things like that. So I'm happy to comment on that. I think that, um, you know, I'll speak for myself. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not positive, rosy, you know, I'm not, 
how to say, like, I'm not silly about this. I'm not stupid. You know, I followed the Arab Spring. My PhD was on Libya. Of course, we work on Syria. Um, I realized that, you know, the world is not linear just because people go to the streets and demand social justice that, you know, it's not, things aren't going to change overnight. And I also realized because of my work on power sharing that these warlords turned politicians have invested so much in 30 decades, you know, they've invested time and money and martyrs and foreign relations. They've bought land. They're very invested in the system. And so then, of course, it's very natural and expected and classic and even boring that they would react in the ver- in the different series of counter-revolutions that we've seen. So, of course, there will be violence. Of course, you know, Hezbollah Amal uh, um, supporters will go down and burn them. Of course, the the, the Politicians will say that these protests are threatening civil peace as as though they were protectors of civil peace. Of course, politicians will say, oh, I'm not corrupt. It's not my fault. It's his fault. Of course, they will try to be a cabinet that will co-opt, you know, demands and do sort of these piecemeal reform efforts and kind of, you know, wear a nice jacket, a nice suit and say, yeah, you know, we need to get. So, of course, so what I would say is, yes, there is a massive counter revolution, but it's, uh, if you allow me to say this, it's not very interesting for people like me because it's like extremely expected. And this is where I'm telling you the shift and the paradigm has happened from expecting that they can change to knowing that they're resilient only to a certain extent. If they have foreign patronage support, if they have their own constituency support, they're losing both. And the shift has been into going and working, you know, in the shadows and planning, planning to shake power differently. Uh, working on unions and new political platforms and women's participation, et cetera, without expectation that the system is going to be able to carry this. They can't. It's impossible. If they fix the country, then you and I don't need to be having this conversation, but they can't. It's impossible. I think people are realizing this and they're becoming less and less relevant to daily life, even to the economic crisis. I mean, it's people, you know, pooling resources together and helping one another. And it's the same in politics. They're illegitimate. I see. They're kicked out of, out of every restaurant they go to. I mean, they're, they're the most hated. Probably they're the most hated politicians in the world. Definitely, Jibran Basir is the most cursed politician in the world. Uh, now, in the context of this growing legitimacy deficit, uh, from an outside view, you know, watching Lebanon from, uh, from a distance, it still seems as if the protests have slowed down in the last couple of weeks and maybe entered an abeyance period of a sort of larger revolutionary cycle. Um, is this a result, do you see, of the violence or, or of government tactics? Um, yeah, so I also do, I've done, I've written a piece um, on abeyance and social movements. I think it's too soon to to say that the protests in Lebanon have entered abeyance. And even if they did, that's not bad news per se. I think that the protests and the revolution, there are, there are various layers of engagement in times of revolution, right? And we know this from history. We know this from other countries. There are multiple layers of engagement. The street can only do so much. It can shake, you know, people, it can shake the legitimacy of the system. It can question their tactics. There's not been violence in the last few weeks. You're mistaken in that. There's been police violence attack against peaceful protesters, bloggers, journalists, students, young women, older women. There's not been violence. The revolution has been extremely peaceful, breaking down a couple of ATM machines and and some glass in fancy downtown Beirut is not violence. It's uh, small forms of vandalism. And this happens in all large capitals in the world where unemployment of youth is almost at 60% right now. So the revolutions have been violent. Uh, Perhaps they'll enter abeyance. It's not bad news because in abeyance periods, what happens is that 
you know, main actors sort of get to sit together and think together and develop a narrative. And I think what Abeyance is doing to Lebanese people at the grassroots level is allowing us to reconcile because for 30 years after the war, the narrative of the system and the narrative of power sharing has been that they are the protectors of otherwise what would turn into a war. And so I think it's too soon to enter to say it's an abeyance, even if it is, that's not bad news because it allows people to reconcile and to think through the next phase and the next narratives. Um, and I also don't think that there's been any violence at all. I think the depiction of that is a bit misleading. Oh, that makes sense. And sorry, I didn't mean to suggest that the protests have been violent. Uh, I was referring to the violent actions of the regime as a, as a tactic to buttress its resilience. I'm glad, though, that you've mentioned the different layers of engagement that have occurred. I wonder if you could speak to some of the layers, uh, which new Bordesian fields or arenas have opened. Uh, I'm thinking here in particular about universities, given your own position as a scholar and an activist. I think that what's happening right now, if you were to come or if colleagues come and visit, is I've never seen Beirut more uh, vibrant and hopeful. I know that sounds weird because we're all broke and we're landlocked because it's impossible to get our money out or get our money in. But there's like so many avenues being born from creating working unions uh, because the unions were co-opted after the civil war so there's already been you know so much effort there to liberate unions and to put a workers agenda um, remember that this is the experience of generation of activists who tried NGOs and, and realized that NGOs you know suck at bringing about political change they've tried to do it through government change from within doesn't happen we tried to enter political parties but they you know wouldn't let us in because we're not sectarian enough so it's this experimentation with new forms of media, blogs, public talks, um, and unions. And you're right, you know, to point out as well, a massive rethinking about the role of universities in academia. And I think it was, I was in South Africa this summer and just learned about all this work that the university did in the apartheid movement and trying to bring back some of that and talk with a lot of colleagues in the global South and colleagues both in AUB across Lebanon as to what we can do to get the revolution to manifest in different ways. I mean, my colleagues in, at AUB and I, we went on strike from day one. We said the classroom and the street, and the street has become the classroom, and we have more to learn from our students. And that, I think, is very exciting and is, an, is a daily extension of the revolution. And I think that the streets will and can come back at any point, but I think we need time to get organized, given how power-sharing institutions after the war kind of broke down all social relations and all political ties among people, right? So it's as if you're coming out of a dictatorship where there was so much mistrust and fear and, and you know, limited scope. And now it's, okay, let's let's dream together. Absolutely. And, and do you see any further potential roles for academics in the revolutionary movement? Is there is there more that academics can do? Uh, yeah, so there's a couple of things that I've been thinking about that have become amplified during a revolution and crisis. So I've been thinking for a long time, a long time about the presence of social sciences and the work that DTF Hassan does at the Institute for Advanced Study to sort of get young scholars and older scholars, of course, to think about uh, the presence of research beyond its publication and, and the public presence of this research. And I think that looking into AUB, particularly, there's so much research that can feed into fixing problems in Lebanon, whether it's electricity, environment, municipalities, women, public health, reproductive health. There's so much that I think that we're all learning as colleagues to kind of think about translating that and making it more publicly accessible. And in doing so, I think putting forward a narrative that says, you know, these problems can be solved. And, and if you ask me personally, they're not solved because the men in power are incompetent and unwilling. 
um, but they can be solved. So that's one part that is, you know, one pillar is that it's around research. And the second is sort of very organic pillar because many of us are activists and, and have been on the street since day one. And I think that blurry line between the classroom, the inside, the outside, I mean, I'll just tell you empirically what happened last semester. We all adapted our syllabi. We all, you know, took to the streets. We all showed up at police stations when students got arrested, not just AUB students, any students. Um, and so this, this, the, the walls, you know, are very blurry and very organically changing. And the third thing, I mean, to consider that I've also been thinking about a long time is this concept of crisis and adapting with crisis and what happens when crisis becomes part of daily life. And a group of us are also thinking, document the experience around pedagogy on, in crisis, right? And I mean, how do you teach when people... How, how do you how do you work at a university if your subject matter you know is like mine it's politics and leadership and democracy when people you know students get into the classroom and their parents are broke and they couldn't withdraw money they couldn't pay their tuition you know their 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 son their brother got kidnapped the night before and was is held with police the roads are closed uh, also the revolution is divisive not everybody agrees and some students like these politicians so how do you how do you literally manage that and you can't just enter the room and be like hey chapter 5 page 4 all of this i think you know all of us so the university has a role to play in all of these pillars in research and pedagogy and in sort of you know reaching out to what's happening Oh, well, I think that's probably a nice place to leave our discussion with the the encouraging note of academia's potential role beyond the ivory tower. Uh, yeah, and thank you. I mean, I think Melg is leading with this sort of podcast to get us, you know, to think about this. And I think we'll, we'll see more. We'll see more of this sort of, yeah, vibrancy and excitement about the role of the university in that sense. Like, I'm really happy to be at the part of it, at the heart of it, really. Um, yeah. Well, thank you very much. And, and also, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks so much for caring, for telling the story of Lebanon, and for hosting me, uh, Ezra. No, thanks again for joining us. And thank you to everyone who listened in. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Middle East Law and Governance Podcast. Mm-hmm.